Today's sermon is from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, City Church Eastside. As Scott mentioned, my name's Dan DeCriccio, one of the elders here at City Church. And yes, I'm not going to let you down. I'm going to have a couple of musical references here. I'm pretty predictable now. I pretty much know what I'm going to talk about already. Uh, so one of my favorite bands growing up was CNC Music Factory. You remember CNC Music Factory? No, I'm joking. They weren't. But you got to know CNC back in 91, you know, around MC Hammer. Everybody dance now. Remember that song? Yeah, I, Caroline, I, I could use some voice lessons wherever you're at. I, I'm horrible at singing. But my favorite C&C song was probably Things That Make You Go Hmm. Remember that one? Things That Make You Go Hmm. Right? That was named after a skit from the a good old Arsenio Hall show back in the late 80s. I remember all of this useful information from my Wikipedia binges that I have at night, you know. A lot of people come up and ask me, have you seen the latest Stranger Things or have you seen this cool new show on HBO? I'm like, no, I haven't. I know Blippi and I know useless information like CNC Music Factory because Wikipedia is my entertainment. <laughs> so things that make you go, hmm, Right. Here's another piece of useless information about that song. As of this Wednesday, July, or excuse me, June 23rd, that song will be 30 years old. 30 years old. Can you believe that? Do you know who else was 30 years old when they started their ministry? Jesus. It comes full circle, friends, this morning. That's the sermon. Thank you very much. There you go. We're done. No, just kidding. So Monday mornings in staff meeting, I got, you know, to come back my first time. You know, Scott was out this week, so me, Mike, Kirsten, Caroline, Chase, others, the staff, we got together and we talked about Psalm 110. We always talk about next week's sermon. Uh, and, you know, as we read through this passage, just as Alicia did, what did we read? What did we read on Monday? The Lord said to my Lord... Footstools, the mysterious, enigmatic Melchizedek, Kazedek, however you pronounce his name, images of corpses piling up, things that make you go, hmm, right? And it should cause us to go, hmm, and there's probably better ways to say, hmm, and maybe they are that the psalm interrupts us. It makes us question. It makes us reflect. It may challenge assumptions. That's probably why Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Jesus quotes it. It's in all of the synoptic gospels. It's actually known, oddly enough, as the psalm that is appointed to be read on Christmas in the Book of Common Prayer. 
Friends, has Scott actually said, interesting, Holy Spirit moment, we didn't plan this, can we have a little Christmas today? Can we have a little Christmas in June? Allow this scripture, as we talk about on Christmas, to interrupt us, to stop us, to cause us to shout for joy like Zachariah and Elizabeth when they met Jesus and proclaimed him as the consolation of Israel. And at that time, like the enemies, the kings of the world, the Herods of the world, to realize that a new king has arrived, to do what? To challenge them, to destroy the hostility, to make peace. Peace, shalom. We, we want this peace, don't we? we? We really desire this peace in our lives and in our world as Alicia prayed. But before there's peace, there must be some type of victory. And that's our point today. That's our point, is that to, to know peace, we must first know the victorious king. We must know the priest of the kingdom. We must know an enemy of the kingdom. And those are our three points today. Again, to know this peace, we must know the king, know the priest, and know the enemy. So let's jump into it, friends. Uh, our scripture today starts with Psalm 110. 1 through 2, and we'll put it up on the screen here. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. First, what do we see? What grabs us? Right out of the gate. The Lord said to my Lord. Peculiar, right? You know, for the kids that are out there and the kids that are, that are watching, you know, imagine if one of your teachers, you know, said to you, hey, Bobby, Sally, what are you going to do this summer? And you answered, my dad said to my dad, we're going to Tybee. You'd be like, what? What? My dad said to my dad. That's a weird phrase. The Lord said to my Lord. So this is best interpreted, or I should say translated by Father God Creator said to my Lord, the one whom I submit to, the one that has lordship over me. In this first line, the psalmist, who we know is King David, and that's really important, by the way, that this is King David speaking, is observing some divine oracle that is being directed to this Lord, to this Lord that actually, who isn't God the Father, but this Lord that has lordship and authority over him. Who is this? Things that make you go, hmm, right? <laughs> so we need a little bit of help with interpretation here. And one of the best rules for interpreting Scripture is something called uh, the analogy of faith, which goes like this. It's that we let Scripture interpret Scripture. When, when something is a little bit unclear or foggy, we go to other Scripture to help us provide context and understanding around that particular Scripture. So we can go to Matthew 22, 41. And we're going to let Rabbi Jesus here help us interpret this scripture a little bit. So we, we see here, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus says, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Hmm, another hmm moment there. 
Hopefully you can join me. I'm going to continue to use that, probably annoy you throughout the, 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 the sermon here. Well, first, let's break in here with a little breaking news. We do know that Psalm 110 is what's called a messianic psalm. Mike taught on Psalm 2 not too long ago, another messianic psalm. And when I say messianic, that means that it's pointing to or saying something about the coming Messiah, the consolation of Israel, as we were just talking about, the everlasting king that is to come in the line of David. But we see here is actually not a son of David. He's in the line of David, but not a son. Well, how can that be? He's the son of God. Again, let's go to some additional scripture. Psalm 2. Again, Mike talked about this a little while ago. It says this. It shouldn't be a surprise to the readers. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. See, friends, when you start interpreting scripture with scripture, scripture and you start looking for Jesus in scripture, you see him all over the place, all throughout redemptive history, all throughout scripture and the Bible. And there's these many lines and these many patterns that are all over the place. One of them is a messianic line. One of them is a, a, a one about the temple. What about uh, sacrificial systems? Things like that. This is one of the reasons why when Jesus opens up the scriptures to those two guys uh, on the road to Emmaus, it says that their hearts burn inside of them because they're making the connections. They're making the connections. They're seeing that, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the victorious son of God. He's victorious. So what does it mean to be a victorious king? What does it mean to, to be king here for Jesus? Well, I'm going to throw a lifeline out to something called the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you're, you're here and you're a Reformed Presbyterian, you probably know this. If you're not, the Westminster Confession of Faith is a standard of, of our doctrine here at our church. So uh, here's the lifeline. Question 26. How doth Christ... I'm, I'm going to save the English, the, 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 the 17th century English here for you. How does Christ execute the office of king? Christ executes the office of king in subduing us to himself under his lordship, in ruling and defending us, and this should sound familiar, in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. So the question might be, well, who are the kings and our enemies? We're going to talk about this a bit in our third point. But I want to draw us to scripture here in Ephesians. Paul talks about this, about our enemies. He says, for our struggle is not about flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, spiritual enemies. And this helps us put a little context about how we read Psalm 110 today. We read that difficult line about piling up the corpses that Elisha mentioned, it says here in Psalm 110, I'll read it. He, the king, Messiah, will execute judgment among the nations, filling them up with corpses, shattering chiefs over the wide earth. Now, that's a little bit jarring in our day and age. It wasn't so back then because that's sort of just normal king speak. But today we're like, oh, what's this you know, piling up of bodies? Why so I, I propose to you is that we think about that that is happening actually per Paul in the spiritual realms that the war is ongoing today and being fought so if there's this war going on what are our weapons what are the weapons for this war friends they're faith and love faith 
and love. When Jesus, when King Jesus calls us to faith and love, he's actually calling us to arms. He's calling us into battle. We know that faith, by Scripture, it, it extinguishes the fiery darts of the devil. And that love, by loving our enemy, we actually heap burning coals upon the heads of our enemy. That, of course, isn't happening literally in the, in the earthly realms, but it is happening in the spiritual realms. That when we love the unlovable, when we love like Jesus has loved us, when we believe the unseen, a little demon gets a cap in his butt up in the spiritual realms extinguished see these these weapons of faith and love you know they they, they're just not something that god calls us to and jesus calls us to he actually equips us with them they're gifts we talked about gifts earlier gifts from the king by jesus by the spirit that he gives us by our regeneration he equips us for this battle as it says in Ephesians that when Jesus ascended, he gave unique gifts to the church. He gave gifts to the church and equipped us for this battle. As Scott was just mentioning, uh, I was just getting off a sabbatical here. And, you know, this is true for me. And, you know, many of, of us, you know, when we take a break, we like to think about, well, how has God gifted us? And how could we best use those gifts for his glory? And I know many of you in here, we talk about this. We do this work. We have classes. Ed teaches the Discover Your Design class, which I encourage you to take. Try to discern what are our gifts? How have we been gifted? How do I use that for God's glory? Whether that be singing, as Caroline was talking about, or something else. Now, this is really good work, and I encourage you to do it, and I love doing it. But before we look too much into ourselves, or I should say alongside us looking at ourselves, we need to know the gift giver. We need to get to know the gift giver. And as Chase was talking about just a couple of minutes ago, it's not a head knowledge gift. It's a, it's a, it's a deep knowledge. In Greek, I think that word is ginosko, which means it's a deep knowledge, like you would know your wife or know a family member. It's a deep knowledge. We need to get to know the victorious king. He's victorious because he defeated sin and death, a death that was confirmed by, I should say, a victory that was confirmed by his death and his resurrection. And because of this work that Jesus has done, we can use our gifts to bring peace. And just like David understood his kingly gifts, they were under the authority of the king. Just like our gifts are under the authority in service to the king and the kingdom, the king of kings, the Lord of Lords. So let's now talk about the priest of the kingdom. Talk about the priest of the kingdom. We talked about the king of the kingdom. Let's talk about the priest of the kingdom. One of my favorite scriptures, uh, and it's one of the ones that, you know, usually my favorite scriptures are the ones that make me cry. So hopefully I'll not do that here today. But is when Jesus is on the cross close to death with one criminal on one side and one criminal on the other side. And they all, they all start talking. I'll start talking. Luke 23, 39 says here, one of the criminals who, who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward 
of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Said the criminal. Paradise. We, we learn a little bit about this paradise in Revelation 21, 4. That heaven will be a place where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. There should be no mourning, no crying, no pain, no more. So the former things have passed away. We could talk a lot about this paradise this morning. The kingdom uh, to come in its fullest. But that's not what the sermon's about. <laughs> it's things that make you go, hmm, we're supposed to interrupt each other here this morning, and I'm going to draw us back to this cranky, nasty, wasty criminal that's hanging on the cross. At least that's how we think of him, right? He's somehow this bad guy. But he asks a very reasonable question, doesn't he? Why you, Jesus, who's reportedly this king, this Messiah king, is hanging up here on the cross with these guys, with me and him? You're the king, right? King Jesus, that is true. But who else is Jesus? Let's go back to our verse, Psalm 110.4. We'll put it up here on the screen for you. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. You know, Felicia and I have another child. We're going to name him Melchizedek. There you go. That's we're making this deal right before a cloud of witnesses. Melchizedek, call him Melky. You you may be wondering. You may now Melchizedek's one of my favorite people in the Bible because he's just weird, and he's mysterious, and enigmatic. What does he have anything to do with Jesus, a king on a cross? Well, again, as I said, Melchizedek, he's a mysterious man who pops up in Scripture three times. He pops up in Genesis 14. He pops up uh, here in Psalm 110 and in Hebrews uh, 6 and 7, which helps sort of exegete a little bit about who he is and like, who is this guy? Thank you, writer of Hebrews. <laughs> now, interesting fact on Melchizedek, he's one of the few important people of Scripture that actually doesn't have a genealogy tied to him, which is very, very odd explaining sort of where he came from. He just sort of popped up out of nowhere. Things that make you go, hmm, right? So again, we need a little help with explanation here and interpretation with this Hebrews passage, or excuse me, with our Psalm 110 passage, and we'll go to Hebrews 7 and read this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of peace, Salem, Jerusalem, interesting, another hmm moment there, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings, Corpses piling up there, sounds a little bit like this morning. Slaughter of kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. What's, who is this guy Abraham's worshiping here or serving? He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And he's also a king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother of genealogy, neither having beginning days or end of life, but resembling who? The Son of God. He continues as a priest forever. 
Melchizedek, man, who are you? Something that makes you go, hmm, right? Well, he's a king, but he's also a priest. He's a king, and he's a priest. He's a priest king. A priest king, now, I didn't really know this until I started studying this this week, but a priest king is very rare, very rare. In pre-Jesus' times, you could only be a, a priest if you were a Levite, of course, and that you descended from Aaron. Uh, and you could draw your genealogy back to him. The first king of Israel, actually Saul, got fired from his job by, by Samuel because he tried to do priestly duties as a king. He got in big trouble for that. But David, here in the psalm this morning, this Messiah that we know is Jesus, he's not just victorious king, he's also everlasting priest. He's a priest king. To better understand this office of Jesus' priestliness, we need to get some help again from Westminster Confession of Faith. Question 25, we'll bring it up here. Shorter catechism, how does Christ execute the office of priest? And friends, this Confession of Faith stuff, it can be a lot of information, but let us read this and really have it soak in, because there's important work here that Christ is doing in our lives Christ executes the office of priest in his, what? Once offering up of himself as a sacrifice to, to, to satisfy the divine justice. To reconcile, not him, but us to God. Reconcile us to God and making continual, everlasting intercession for us. So I have three important things, at least I think they're important things to say here about this about Jesus as a priest and why this is important. I just sort of said it that Jesus, his work is everlasting. He's an everlasting priest. All of the other Levitical priests under the old order, whether they were a great priest or a bad priest or a Judas priest, sorry, I had to put another band reference in there, their duties of offering up sacrifices were limited by their own death. They were stopped and halted, interrupted by their own death. They could not continue on, but not Jesus, because he's a priest after the order of who? Melchizedek, without beginning or end. But don't take my word for it. Let's look at Hebrews here. Hebrews 7.23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That's point one. Point two here, why this is important. Secondly, his perfection of his priestly duties. Jesus is perfect in his job. Professor D.A. Carson, founder of the Gospel Coalition, says this. With Jesus, you're you're not walking down the street thinking, I hope hope my high priest uh, did a good job today. I hope that he properly atoned for his sins before mine. Otherwise, maybe I'm not in good standing here. No, you're not thinking that with Jesus. We're assured. We have assurance. We have assurance that our atonement is perfect and complete because his work is perfect and complete. Don't take my word for it. Hebrews 7 again. For it is indeed fitting that we should have a perfect high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, you know, in the old order, to offer those sacrifices for, first for his own sins and then mine. But since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself perfect. And finally, the third point here. 
His sacrifice is a sacrifice that seals a better covenant. It's a better covenant. It's not just forgiveness, but it's an inheritance that we receive in eternal kingdom. Hebrews 9.15 talks about this. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised internal inheritance, paradise, the kingdom in its fullest. So again, knowing We've got to know Jesus, King Jesus, of course, victorious Jesus. But we also got to know High Priest Jesus. And what he did on the cross, he bought us not only forgiveness and peace, but an inheritance internally, the kingdom, paradise. It is by faith that the believing criminal received it that day when he was hanging on the cross. It is by faith that us, you and me, criminals... We receive it. So how should we respond to this? How should we respond to this? You know, the, the last verse here that we're going to look at today, Psalm 110.3, uh, is translated a bunch of different ways. One of the things we talked about in our staff meeting, things that make you go, hmm. It actually is footnoted. It says, and I paraphrase, we really don't understand what this means in Hebrew. <laughs> and you look at all the translations, they're like, Five different ways it's translated. So I'll give you one here. Psalm 110.3 reads this in the ESV. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Let me read that first line again because this is what really hit me. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Now, based on what we've read today, you know, all the hmms, pauses that we had in reading this scripture, of course, in understanding and and thinking about and meditating and knowing King Jesus and priestly Jesus, we should respond in thanksgiving and worship and repentance. I remember becoming an elder here. Scott gave me something to read. I think it was something from Henry Nowen that said that our Christian life and our days should always be in in a cycle of repentance and thanksgiving. And worship true. But again, things that make you go, hmm, I want to stop us here for a second. uh, Because I really want to focus on the posture and the action of the people here in Psalm 110. The posture and their action. The people that are subdued under the service of the king, the children, the citizens of the kingdom. Again, I love the phrase, you people will offer themselves up freely. I want us to picture that for a second If you know Greg Birch and his coaching, he talks us about picturing, you know, pausing and really like seeing this or sort of tasting and seeing this moment. Um, Think about offering yourself freely to the Lord. What does that look like? The people, they're drawn to the Messiah. They're not under obligation or compulsion. They're drawn. They're motivated by love. They're motivated by grace. They're awake. They're ready for battle. This should remind us of some other last day prophecies like Micah 4.1 here. It shall come to pass in the latter days, which is now, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted above the hills, and the people shall do what? They shall flow. They shall flow to it. The people flowing to the Lord freely, again, as I said, out of love, gratitude, grace. If you're a believer of Jesus Christ this morning and you belong to a church, this message is for us. 
It's for us, friends. We have a king, and we have a kingdom that's been purchased for due to the high king's, high priest's priestly sacrifice, and he has gifted us. He's given us gifts. And one of these huge gifts, the supreme gift really is grace. His grace, his amazing grace, his grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. In theological circles, uh, we may call this irresistible grace. It's the eye and tulip, if you know your five points of Calvinism here, that acronym. Let me share a quote from R.C. Sproul. He talks about irresistible grace. We'll put this on the screen here. What is meant by irresistible grace is not what the word seems to suggest. That grace is incapable of being resisted. Indeed, we are capable of resisting God's grace, and we do re- re- uh, resist God's grace. The idea is that God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome our natural resistance to it. Indeed, we aren't dragged to Christ. We run to Christ. We embrace Him joyfully because the Spirit has changed our hearts. So as Christians, when we receive amazing grace, grace upon grace upon grace, in the end, it can't be resisted. But how are we doing today? How are we doing today? In the end, it can't be resisted. But are we resisting? Again, our scripture says today that your people will offer themselves freely. They'll run to you in fifth gear, baby. But are we in neutral? Have we put ourselves in neutral? Are we coasting? And so I propose to you, friends, that one of the biggest enemies of the church today is indifference. Being in neutral indifference. Do you know this enemy? Do you know the enemy? The priest Alexander Scheman, I think is his name, or we'll just call him Alex the priest. He says this about indifference. He says, the basic disease is sloth. It is the root of all sin because it poisons the spiritual energy at its very source. Indifference. Our own pastor Scott here. He talks about this frequently many times in his sermon. Scott, I've heard you say that the opposite of love is not necessarily hate. It's indifference. It's not caring. It's saying, whatever. Maybe this indifference is to injustice in the world. Maybe it's indifference to your neighbor. Maybe it's indifference in your marriage to your husband or to your wife or to your children and friends. I thought about I didn't think about this when I was putting this together until I got in the car this morning. Today is Father's Day, and one of the most the biggest challenges for men, if anyone's ever read Silence of Adam, Men of Courage, it's about silence, it's about indifference. It's something especially as fathers and men that we really struggle with. And there's many a times you sit in the counseling room and you hear about an absent or silent father, an indifferent father, and what effect that has on your children. Are we indifferent? Are we indifferent to the grace? Are we indifferent to Jesus, the high priest, the king? Do we feel that way? I mean, a year after or a year into this pandemic, over a year, I say, I I feel your pain. That's me too. That's me. It was just me this week feeling indifferent and numb and worn out 
You know, I find myself many times, like it says, the man in the mirror in James. You know, I forget who I am and whose I am. At the, at the end of the day, I start believing the little lies about myself and saying, maybe I'm not cut out for this. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm, you know, this whole Jesus thing. Maybe I'm just going to coast. You know, this is too hard. This is too hard. Scott, a couple of weeks ago, talked about guilt and shame. It was a great sermon. And I'm not here to guilt us or shame us in, you know, because of our indifference. <laughs> now, that would, be, that would be really, really foolish because I tell you, my own indifference is driven by my own unresolved guilt and shame a lot of times. It's because I'm wanting to hide, wanting to numb myself. And so, no, we're not going to guilt or shame each other. Because of this indifference, we're going to give each other the gospel. We need real power to end this cycle, to reinvigorate us, to refresh us. Yes, it is true I'm not worthy of you, Jesus, but I'm actually counted as worthy based on our first two points, based on the, the fact that the victory has been won. Jesus has won the victory. He's equipped you. He's equipped me, the church, with what? The weapons of faith, hope, and love. And because of this, we should be responding in song, in singing, in singing to Him. Not silent, not hiding, not numbing, not retreating. I know some days it may not seem like we're winning, right? It seems like we're losing, whether that's corporately or personally. You know, some theologians, you know, help, help us sort of think about this and think about our, our current reality as, as sort of like World War II, sort of D-Day. You know, that the troops, when they landed on, on the, the beaches of Normandy, the war was basically over. It was basically won, I should say. But it didn't end until a year later. There were still battles that still needed to play out. And we're living in that tension right now, and some people call that the now, but not yet. The now and not yet. It is true that Jesus right now is at the Father's right hand in victory, but the war is not over yet. Now is not the time to be indifferent as the church. We're human. God gave us emotions we're supposed to feel. We have a heart. We have a mind. We're equipped for battle. So in conclusion here, as we talked about, I encourage us today, we have a little Christmas in June. Christmas time is here, as the peanuts sing. Christmas time is here. Now, let's ask King Jesus, perfect high priest Jesus, to encourage our hearts, to equip us, to throw off the cobwebs and the dust of indifference, to sing joy to the world. The Lord, the kingdom has come and it is coming. So I hope today in Psalm 110 that uh, it's, it's caused you to go, hmm, a little bit. Things that make you go, hmm. There's a lot of things that make you go, hmm, in here, I, I, I propose. So I'll leave you with my actual favorite band song. <laughs> Not being, you know, joking this time. Genesis and their song, Supper's Ready. Peter Gabriel sings this. There's an angel standing in the sun, and he's crying with a loud voice. This is the supper of the mighty one, Lord of Lord, King of Kings, has returned to bring his children home 
to take them to the new Jerusalem. Let us pray. Father God, Lord Jesus, as it says here in the psalm, you will not change your mind. Jesus, you're the Alpha and the Omega. This has all been planned out. It is just unfolding before our eyes, but you have adopted us as sons and daughters. Let us not forget, as was preached last week, the joy of our salvation. Let us be joyful and run to you, Father God, mountain of the Lord, great Redeemer, King of kings, Lord of lords. We pray these in your name. Amen. Thank you, Dan. We have an opportunity now as God's part of the service where after we hear the word preached,